And now, the State of the Union Address in 30 seconds. Look, I know I've made some mistakes, but let me be clear. I'm not about spouting out a bunch of stuff Republicans love so I can actually try to get some crap done around here. It's like the small business in Pennsylvania, or the sick veteran in Iowa, or the little old lady in Arkansas who lost a dog and her health care in the same week and still hopes to start a windmill factory with lots of green jobs. Michelle's doing some stuff. Hey, baby, why aren't you people clapping more? You guys in the black robes, man, you screwed up. Finally, gay people, what up? Thank you, and God bless the United States of America. It's In the Loop. I'm Jeff Horwich. Did you watch? I thought uh, it was a very interesting speech, not so much for the content, which everybody saw coming, but because of uh, the tone of it. It was very personal, uh, sarcastic, and I know President Obama loves his teleprompters, but there was a lot of off-the-cuff stuff in this one, and it made for entertaining viewing, uh, for me at least. We uh, left open the voicemail lines. Well, they're always open, but but we specifically let people know they were open so that you all could call in during the speech or after the speech and give us your thoughts. And we got calls from a number of people. And without any further ado from me, here's a little two-minute, I think, mix-up, mash-up of some of the calls that we got about this week's State of the Union Address. Yes, my name is Liz Toy. I'm from Salem, Oregon. Hey, guys. This is Jessica Sunheim calling from Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Hey, guys. This is Sarah Martin from Minneapolis. Hey, this is T-Roy calling from Duluth. Man, that speech was ridiculous. That's right! That is the longest campaign speech I've ever heard in my life. That thing had more inaccuracies and lies in it than a Michael Moore documentary. My reaction to the speech would be give him hell, Barry. There was a lot that he had to say to someone like me being on the left side of the left side uh, that was kind of unpalatable. To me, that was the speech of the decade, the speech of the century. I was just totally galvanized. I mean, the, the business about calling for nuclear energy and offshore drilling? What, what, what was that? And it's appalling to know that he would even call out the stimulus bill as a great success. I had really given up on health care reform, but I am back today after that speech. You know, we, we all had to, to swallow a lot of medicine in this speech. Obamaized my Facebook picture again, and I'm calling my Congress people, and I'm ready to get back into the fight. And so when he put his call to repeal, don't ask, don't tell, and he put it in with the civil rights speech, that was a balm to my soul, I think. And uh, he was saving it. I'm convinced he was saving it for a time when he was going to need it to keep people like me from leaving the fold. Folks, we're being lied to. We're being set up. The progressive agenda is a joke. We need to stop it now. Right. Vote them all out. They all got to go. Ooh, Lordy. I am going crazy over here. Supposedly, when Harry Truman heard the yell, give him hell, Harry, he said, I just tell him the truth, and they think it's hell. I think that's a pretty good description of this saving in speech. Bye. Various folks from our In The Loop voicemail line, which is always open, as a matter of fact, for anything that you might want to share with us. The number, very easy to remember. We got lucky on this. It just turned out this way. 651-CAT-GUT-6. One caller uh, who was not in that earlier batch, but I'm going to play for you now, actually took it upon themselves to perform kind of a a public service for us. And uh, here's what she had to share. Hi, my name is Anira, and I'm from Minneapolis. I've always wondered 
how much time have I wasted just listening to people stand there and clap? This time watching it, I decided to try to quantify exactly what's going on there. So I sat there with a stopwatch and hit it every time people would interrupt the president for clapping. And I came up with 20 minutes and four seconds in the first hour. So that's 20 minutes of my life I really wish I could have back. Thanks. Bye. All right. Welcome to the next 20 minutes of your life you'll never get back. Let's get on with the show. Now, the last time we had this guy, Rob Crilly, on, he was in Kenya, and we needed somebody to talk to about Somali pirates. Rob has reported from Africa for years for Times of London, uh, Christian Science Monitor, and lots of other papers and magazines. And we've known for a while that he was at work on a book about Darfur, and we've been meaning to talk with him about it at some point. Well, this week, it's time. And the book is called Saving Darfur, Everyone's Favorite African War. And after we spent the last two weeks getting into Haiti, uh, we're going to put that aside for now, and we'll cheer ourselves up a bit, uh, right, by talking about Darfur. Rob, thanks very much for coming back on In the Loop. Uh, great to be with you. So is there anything to be encouraged about with regard to Darfur right now? I feel like we haven't heard about it in a while. I, I don't know at the moment whether there's anything to be optimistic about, but there's no doubt this is going to be a, a crucial year for Darfur and Sudan. We've got elections coming up in Khartoum, and then at the start of next year, we have a referendum on independence in southern Sudan. Now, both of those could inch the country uh, along the path towards democracy, or they both could end uh, in disaster and renewed violence. So the uh, the genocide, and we'll talk about that term, I guess, uh, in a moment, I bet, but that everyone had heard about and they really put Darfur on the map, has that slackened off and um, is less of a concern now? I'd say in the past two years, we've entered a different sort of phase of the war. We're into a much lower level of violence. There are still 2.7 million people living in miserable conditions in camps. We still have a massive humanitarian crisis. But in terms of the slaughter uh, that we were seeing at the start, which was a series of attacks by the uh, Janjaweed that we heard about, the Arab militias, uh, directed against farming villages, and that doesn't seem to be such a factor anymore. Rather, we're seeing uh, most of the violence is actually within and between those Arab tribes, a a rather different um, sort of war today. Just to characterize uh, where you're coming from here, you were in and out of Darfur many, many times over the course of writing the book, right? What what was that process like, getting in to report? Um, Well, it was always a rather difficult process. First of all, you've got to get the visa to get into the country, and, and sometimes that would be problematic. You might have to wait several weeks. Once you were in, you then needed a a special permit to travel to Darfur itself. And that would allow you to travel to the three regional capitals in Darfur. You weren't really supposed to go out of those towns. And uh, more than once, I'd be out on the street with my notebook and would get picked up by uh, local agents who'd ask me what I was doing. And the conditions are very tough for visiting journalists. You did succeed in getting out of the towns, I gather, just from some of the, the photographs that I've seen of your reporting there. Yes, that's right. There are, there are ways and means of, of doing it. There are uh, United Nations uh, helicopter flights, for example, who, who go on aid missions to some of the rebel-held areas. And it's possible to talk your way onto those. Or my last trip, actually, I, I went to Chad and crossed the border with a, a rebel column. We, we slipped in um, to Darfur. Uh, and that way you can avoid all the government um, hassle and see another side of the country. I gather you, that you think at some point in the recent past, Darfur made some kind of transition from uh, everyone's favorite African war, which is the subtitle of your book, to just another intractable African thing. 
Why do you think that happened? Well, there are lots, uh, always have been lots of forgotten wars in Africa. Northern Uganda, there are wars in Ethiopia, Somalia, all, all rumbling away. And I was rather mystified by why Darfur seemed to be different. And the more trips I made, um, the more I realized that actually what we were being told about in Darfur didn't really quite marry up with the reality. It was seen as a, an evil government waging a, a genocide against an innocent people. And in fact, the, the truth really is far, far more complicated and complex. It's probably about three or four different conflicts all layered on top of each other. And I think that's a very difficult one for, for journalists to communicate. It seemed like literally the day after George Clooney wrapped up his Haiti telethon, he announced that he was heading back to Darfur again. Uh, is this a good thing? Well, um, yes and no. First of all, um, they've all done an incredible job of, of getting Darfur into the headlines. As, as we were just saying, it has slipped out. So my concern, though, with the, um, some of the celebrity advocacy and the campaign groups who are involved in this, they have rather oversimplified this war and led us towards what I believe to be some of the wrong solutions. Hey, you've got an, an intriguing book jacket quote from Mia Farrow, who uh, not everybody would put this on their book jacket, I guess, cause, because it's kind of conflicted praise. But she says, while I disagree with much of Mr. Crilly's analysis, he provides us with a solid journalistic account of his firsthand experiences in Darfur. Uh, I gather you and Mia Farrow don't exactly see eye to eye. Well, that's right. But I have a lot of respect um, for what she's done. But I think her um, ideas of what's happening, she believes that what we've seen in Darfur is genocide. Mm -hmm. I take a rather different view that the government is simply intent on keeping power. It is not intent on wiping out certain races or tribes there. So we have very different um, analyses of what's happening. And as a result, we, we see rather different solutions. Um, she uh, will tend to push the uh, idea that peacekeepers are crucial to solving the problems there and that the International Criminal Court has a role in trying to arrest President Bashir. But I tend to see the, the war being rather more complex and it can only be ended with a negotiated settlement, with a, with a peace deal, a rather messy and um, unpleasant uh, and imperfect peace deal. What we need to do is remember that all the people here are watching their uh, lands disappear as the desert that's ever further south, uh, and that all the people of Darfur, in one way or another, have suffered under President Bashir. All of them are victims, and all of them have to be represented at peace talks. So Haiti is the huge global crisis and uh, sort of media darling of the moment. And uh, we'll see how long that continues. One would hope it continues for a while because that's a pretty significant uh, situation there. Do you think there are any lessons, even though the circumstances and the backgrounds are, are very different, any lessons from Darfur that uh, the global community can apply to Haiti? Well, I mean, yes, it comes back to this point of um, the, the Save Darfur coalition and the West was able to mobilize popular support. It was an incredible coalition of lots of different groups. And that, I think, is a model that can be used uh, in any disaster, in any emergency, in, in any war. Um, but again, I mean, I think it's rather absurd for George Clinton to be addressing the United Nations Security Council or meeting with Gordon Brown in London. There are many superb Sudan policy experts who would never, ever get that sort of exposure. Mm -hmm. So in something like uh, Haiti, there clearly is going to have to be a long-term economic uh, uh, and structural rebuilding program. So let's keep the pressure up for solutions, but let's not allow the George Clooney's of this world to dictate the sort of economic policies that, that that might involve. Well, Rob, thanks for spending some time with us today. It's good to talk with you again. Thanks very much for having me on.
Rob Crilly is a former freelance reporter in Africa, now freelancing from Jerusalem, which is where we reached him. His book, Saving Darfur, is coming out next month in Europe and later this year in the U.S. So while we're still talking about international stories, a couple quick notes here on some stories that we've done interviews on in the past few months that have resolved themselves to some extent this week. Just interesting to watch how stuff plays out. Uh, Mel Zelaya, the former president of Honduras, uh, has hightailed it out of there into exile in Mexico. Um, and uh, what's the other one? Oh, yeah, Sri Lanka. Remember, we have our friend Manju who lives here in town who's been in to talk to us about Sri Lanka a couple of times. We did an interview with him a little while back. He was concerned. He's he's Tamil originally and, and from Sri Lanka. was concerned about this general who had led the uh, defeat of the Tamil Tigers uh, who had gotten into the presidential race and was running as a challenger against the current president of Sri Lanka. And Manju's worry was, well, this might be kind of a soft way of having a coup and uh, the military essentially taking over the country. Well, the general lost pretty handily, although he's challenging the results of those elections. And the current president of Sri Lanka, who has got his own issues from what I understand, uh, neither of them were especially uh, wonderful candidates, at least from uh, the West's perspective. But anyway, the current president remains the president of Sri Lanka. And one more story, not international this time, that ties back to an interview we did just a few weeks ago with Jason Snell, the editor of Macworld, about all the rumors surrounding the iTablet, iSlate, whatever, that Apple was about to come out with, or so people thought. Well, this week, how could you miss this? I don't even need to tell you. Apple rolled out the iPad to great fanfare as uh, greets just about anything Apple rolls out these days. People are not so crazy about the name, and there's an interesting debate about uh, the merits of this particular device. I don't know if I'm sold on it, but uh, when it's Apple, people, does it really matter? At the very least, it got me humming a familiar tune, and so that's this week's musical invention. Hope you dig it. Let me look again into your glowing screen the sweetest thing this fanboy's ever seen. One touch, one touch, one flick, one flick, one smudge, one smudge. I knew I've got, I've got to have, to have my grease, my grease on you. Anything you got, I'll buy it. Practical or not, I'll buy it. Costs an awful lot, I'll buy it. get to hold you, I begin to understand what it's like to hold a netbook in one hand. It's a little awkward. Can't stop. Can't stop. I need. I need. I don't. I don't know why. Oh God. Oh God. It's white. It's white. It starts. It starts with I. Yeah. Whatever you put out, I'll buy it. Anything you tout, I'll try it. Money's running out, I'll die it. Steve, I'll buy it. Uh, no, I won't. At least not yet. If for no other reason than the fingerprint thing just kind of weirds me out. But for other reasons, too. I had the webcam rolling, as I often do when I recorded this song, and I'll put a video up. It's not done yet, but uh, it'll be up at InTheLoopShow.net and our YouTube channel and our Facebook page and all that good stuff. Santa Totten, can you wait to uh, get your sticky fingers all over an <laughs> Apple iPad? 
Um, actually, at this point, I'm still saving up to just buy organic apples at the grocery store. But, uh, you know, when I get that raise, I'm sure I'll spend it on something cool like Keep that. Keep dreaming. Uh, but you're not here <laughs> to talk about technology, or at least not that kind of technology. You're, you're here with a theory that you were bandying about earlier in the week about the Super Bowl. Yeah. Well, Go Vikings. My, no, not the Vikings. Oh. <laughs> never, never anymore speak of that team. <sighs> But, uh, no, the Super Bowl got me thinking a lot um, because I, I noticed some trends and it, it just it, it popped in my head that maybe this is going to be a game changer of the Super Bowl. Not sports for the wise? sports. Okay. Nope, for the ads. So, so here's what got me thinking, right? The Super Bowl, we all know, is like the biggest day for advertisers ever, hands down. Studies show that the number of ads has climbed steadily year after year and the price for those ads has gone up almost every year. Mm-hmm. Okay, so rewind to a few weeks ago. <laughs> Just like that. And Pepsi makes a big announcement. They say, we're not going to advertise in the Super Bowl. Okay, and follow that with FedEx, General Uh Motors, both pulling out. And you start to think, like, what is going on here? Do we get the long-haired UPS guy still? Yeah, I think he's still going to be there. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) The guy with the girl No Vikings, but at least I get that weirdo. So then I find out, and this is where it starts to get really fishy, that ads are actually selling less this year. The price usually goes up little by little every year until last year it hit $3 million for an ad. Now it's down to about 2.5 or 2.8. It's gotten to the point where CBS is letting this um, Tim Tebow ad that's going to be supposedly a, a pro-life commercial into the Super Bowl, even though before their policy was to not let any advocacy commercials in there at all. Hmm. People for non-sports saying, people, Tim Tebow is a uh, big college quarterback yeah in yeah florida right florida and his okay. mom decided not to have an abortion even though she was having a troubled pregnancy and he's going to talk about that tmi yeah well about tim tebow but okay he's going to tell it to a lot of people and, and people worry that you know this means that cbs is basically opening the floodgates for uh advocacy commercials because they need money mm-hmm. because they're just not selling enough of these ads very interesting so what is it the, the usual story right the the internet and you know Time shifting and place shifting and people are skipping through the ads. Right. Nobody cares about ads. That's what I thought. So to find out, I called up Chuck Tom Kovic, and he's a marketing professor at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. His name is Chuck Tom? Chuck Tom Kovic. Chuck Tom Kovic. Chuck Tom Kovic. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, his team of researchers, they have studied over 400 Super Bowl ads to analyze trends. That sounds like a fun job. Just watching Super Bowl ads all the time? Uh, Well, kind of. Your, your brain kind of gets fried. I mean, it's hundreds of hours. That's true. I would run screaming from hundreds of hours of the UPS girly guy. <laughs> well, Chuck, uh, he braved through it, and he said that over the nine years of commercials that he studied, there has been a remarkable change thanks to the Internet. Throwing a celebrity into an ad used to be kind of a magic formula for uh, a likable Super Bowl ad. And uh, today, uh, we're all celebrities. We all know what YouTube is. So uh, we found that uh, the value of adding a celebrity into the formula to produce a likable ad has eroded. So even though the ads are uh, you know, becoming more user-generated and less focused on celebrities, Chuck says that there's no way that this spells the end of the Super Bowl ad. The day is sacred for the American public. It's on the calendar. And so the event will generate an audience. We predict a day when you'll see a $10 million for 30-second ad, uh, certainly in the lifetime of our college students. (laughs) So he pretty much crapped on your theory. Yeah, uh, it stinks. Well, this is one of those things. When you think about the Super Bowl, it's true. People watch it live. Yeah. So if there's any time people are going to sit through ads, it's kind of that day. And it's also, you know, it still holds true that uh, 
51%, according to a recent Nielsen poll, of people watch the Super Bowl for the ads. So the majority of people, by one tiny percent, are there to see commercials. Wow. So, okay. That many. My theory's kaput, but there's still something going on because, you know, Pepsi, FedEx, General Motors pulling out, ads not selling. Mm-hmm. Something, something must be happening here. This has been coming steadily. What's been coming steadily? And who's that guy? Yeah, uh, this big change. And that is Thomas Harpointner, CEO of AIS Media Inc. They're an interactive, yeah, web consulting, very thinky-think sort of firm. And can we just say that I know when you did the interview with him, he had uh, staffers listening on the phone and right. they tweeted the entire conversation. That, that's how on top of interactive media this guy is. Dang. Yeah, he's good. So he says this big change, companies like Pepsi pulling out, it was bound to happen. Because, well, for Pepsi, advertising in the Super Bowl just doesn't make sense. They are fully aware that virtually every person in the United States has seen the Pepsi product before. They're intimately familiar with who Pepsi is as a company. Right. There's nobody who's like, hmm, look at that beverage. That looks tasty. I should try that sometime. Yeah. You know, are we really going to go to the store and say, oh, yeah, this is, this is new. It's not new. We, we, you know, we all know what it is. Instead, Pepsi decides we're, we're going to spend $20 million in 2010 on uh, interactive media, uh, social media like Facebook and so forth. And, you know, we'll, we'll spread this money out throughout the entire year versus trying to reinforce our brand. And uh, Thomas Harpointner, commercial guru that he is, he says that you're probably going to see brands like Budweiser do the same thing next year. They're just going to keep pulling out these big legacy advertisers from the Super Bowl. I mean, this whole thing of these companies leaving is because they're realizing people know us and what we need to do is focus on getting them even more engaged with us. And you can't do that through an ad. You can entertain them. But the place to do that now is the web. So, you know, this opening up of the commercial field, it leaves some serious winners. The companies that have the most to gain from a Super Bowl ad are companies that have a less known brand. You know, last year, Cash for Gold, they made a big splash on a Super Bowl. Uh, and they got millions and millions of visitors to their website within a 24-hour period. It was a success just like uh, GoDaddy and now Monster, you know, you, you want to make a big splash. There's no better way to do it than the Super Bowl. And if you're GoDaddy.com making ads that just barely, barely qualify as tasteful enough for viewing with your kids in the room. Right. Uh, which, you know, as we all know, gets clicks on the Internet. So there you go. Up your interactivity right there. Um, and Up your interactivity. <laughs> oh, that was a new no, no, techie no. insult. Uh, continue. Right. And trends bear this out, too. Uh, the number of dot-com advertisers in the Super Bowl uh, almost doubled from last year, from five advertisers to nine, and it's expected to go up this year. Pets.com. <laughs> I don't know if they'll be making a comeback. But mm. basically, uh, you know, yeah, the game has changed for Super Bowl ads. But the way it's changed is that it's no longer a place for the classics, for, you know, the all-stars of advertising. It's more like a debutante ball now where you're going to see new people coming in and making themselves known and then leaving the scene when they've sort of made their mark. It's their coming out party. Basically. Yep. Mm. Which doesn't still make it very good for CBS or whatever networks carry the Super Bowl, right? Because... Maybe they've got to adjust their rates because it's not necessarily Budweiser and Pepsi that are forking it over. True, true. Although, um, you know, as soon as we get out of this recession, everyone I talk to seems to believe that the rates for the ads will still continue to climb. So, yeah, I don't think uh, CBS will be losing money on the Super Bowl anytime soon. Very interesting. It's enough to maybe almost make me watch the Super Bowl, even though the Vikings aren't in it. Well, you, you know, you can mute the game and just watch the commercials. Interesting thought. All right, Sandon, thanks for stopping by. Yep. So, changing the topic only slightly, Ben Bernanke was reconfirmed this week for a second term as Fed chairman, and it was sort of by the skin of his teeth, at least as those things usually go. I think 30 senators, something like that, voted against him. 
And there have been a lot of very interesting conversations about whether through this process of helping to manage us through the recovery and having to get reconfirmed at the same time, Bernanke has had too much political pressure put on him and maybe at risk of losing the independence that he needs to keep a tight control over the money supply and fight inflation and do all those kinds of things that presumably as the head of the central bank you are supposed to do. He's in a tough spot because people are leaning on him to help, to loosen up credit, uh, allow more money into the economy, basically. So we're not going to talk specifically about that, but while that whole thing was unfolding, another little story caught my eye. This one's from Argentina. And if you haven't seen this, I think it was a little bit obscure. They have got a bit of a central bank issue of their own. Uh, The president has fired or tried to fire the governor of the central bank of Argentina. So we're going to flesh out some of the details there because I think actually it may be illustrative and just kind of interesting at the very least uh, around these questions of political pressure and central bank chiefs. And to help us out with that, I've got... Fausta Wirtz on the phone with me. Fausta is a podcaster. She hosts a podcast called 15 Minutes on Latin America, and she blogs at faustasblog.com. And Fausta, I'm always running across your name and your writing when I'm looking for Latin American news, so it's nice to finally have a chance to talk with you. Thank you. So let's just give people some of the, um, the latest information and some of the background here. At the moment, it's not entirely clear, right, who's in charge of uh, the Argentina Central Bank? Um... It's basically a constitutional crisis, yes. Uh, so there's been a court that issued some sort of ruling, but both sides think that they that they won. The president thinks that, uh, yes, indeed, she was right in firing the uh, central bank governor, and the governor, or former governor, I guess we don't know, says, no, no, I'm still in charge. That's right, and he even tried to get in last Sunday and was not allowed to. This guy is not resigning even when he was fired because of a $6.57 billion transfer of foreign reserves. And that's the key issue here. Mm -hmm. That amounts to one-eighth of Argentina's foreign reserves. And the problem is that Cristina Fernandez... The president. The president had decreed in December that she was going to establish a bicentennial fund and that this fund would authorize the use of part of the central bank's foreign reserves to pay off foreign institutions like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and a whole bunch of others. So the president, um, and we'll just give people names here, of course, you said Cristina Fernandez is the president, and Martin Redrado is the governor of the the central bank. That's the question here. And so the president wants to essentially kind of raid the reserves of the central bank to, to pay off foreign debt, Yes. which, if I understand this right will leave her government more free to spend money on other things, like, I don't know, boosting up the economy, and she's got an election coming up, so she kind of wants to do that. Have I, have I got the basics of it right? Yes, but the, the key issue here is that if she uses these reserves to pay those institutions, that disregards the priority that bondholders, who have not been paid since 2001, mm-hmm. Where, when they would be paid. And these bondholders, these, these are people who hold uh, the debt of the Argentine government. Right, right? and so, this is right. debt that goes back to 2001 to the big default. Right. So if right. she's using funds to pay other people ahead of them, she's in violation of this debt on top of it. So this is a financial issue that affects many other people. As a matter of fact, not only in the U.S., but also in the U.K., in Germany, and in Italy. So this is really messy. 
<laughs> the details Basically. of it are quite complicated. And it, it sounds very complicated, uh, but it's not really complicated. You have a president who is trying to use funds for one purpose, when at the same time there is a priority from other debtors. She's facing opposition from the head of the central bank, who is not going along with it, opposition from the court, and the Senate is saying that they want to hear what this is about, too. However, mm -hmm. the Senate is not rushing to convene, because right now it's summer, and they're in their summer session. So, And in Argentina, you, yeah. you, you don't give up your, your summer for nothing. <laughs> in Buenos well, Aires. That, that's also one of the points of contention, but um, <laughs> that's basically the short version of it. And to go to, really, you know, to 30,000 feet on it, to me, it looks like you've got uh, a government and a president that in some ways is saying, you know, loosen up. We need to spend this money on stuff. And you've got the central bank governor who is saying, no, 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 I'm a central bank governor and I have my, you know, I have to watch out for whatever, you know, inflation and like not wasting money that's designed for other things. Exactly. And uh, what was so so interesting about this to me, I mean, it's curious just uh, in its own right, but it seems to sort of mirror, maybe in a kind of hyper way, you know, the same pressures that we're seeing here in the U.S. with, with Ben Bernanke, whose confirmation is coming up, and um, all the political pressure that he feels from both sides to loosen up. Yes, and Mary O'Grady of the Wall Street Journal pointed that out a couple of weeks ago. She said that a lot of people who feel that it's the role of the central bank to be printing money for the government's use. Mm -hmm. thing is, Argentina has had tremendous inflation and has had defaults. Compared to the U.S., it's a much more significant decision. The main thing to learn from this is that everybody should be held accountable, whether it's here and Bernanke or Fernandez in Argentina or whoever. And that is very good news because accountability is what is really one of the basic cornerstones of uh, democracy. Let me ask while I have you, what else is on your radar at the moment, uh, Latin America-wise anyway? What else have you blogged about in recent days? Well, I'm going to blog and I'm also going to podcast on Mel Celaya, who was the deposed president of Honduras, mm -hmm. who finally left the country. He had been staying in and I'm not exaggerating, a tinfoil-lined room in the Brazilian embassy in the capital. <laughs> How about to, to block dangerous yeah. radioactive rays that were aiming at his yeah. brain, that kind of thing? I, I'm not kidding you. Okay. I have pictures of that, too. Wow. He finally left because the new president, who was elected in an open election, mm -hmm. was inaugurated. So Celaya finally admitted that his term had ended, and he left. He went to the Dominican Republic, and he's on his way to Mexico, where he says he's going to live. But... He said, like, uh, MacArthur, I shall come back. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe he'll come back. <laughs> well, Fausto, it's been good to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jeff. My pleasure. Fausto Wirtz hosts the podcast 15 Minutes on Latin America, and she writes at faustasblog.com and realclearworld.com. Let's wrap things up today with the latest in our series of interviews with people who have left their jobs in the midst of this recession to make it as some sort of an artist. And, and we're calling this our Starving Artist series, although we're finding that the people we're talking to are, in many cases, far from starving. Uh, they're actually making a go of it, which is really cool. Today, I've got Mike Brody from St. Paul's coming to the studio to talk to me. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. We talk now with an actor, uh, a visual artist, and Mike is a stand-up comedian. That's right. And how long have you been now professionally, full-time, stand-upping? 
I started doing comedy in 2000, and there were you know paid gigs amongst all that time. But yeah, technically, I guess without having any kind of day job, I would say about eight months. And now I think of all the people that we might talk to, stand up would seem to me that the toughest way to actually make a living because there are lots of places you can go and like tell jokes for free, mm-hmm. but to actually get paid for it. Seems really tough. Yeah. Would you agree that you're sort of on the more difficult end of the spectrum here? Well, yeah. And also, like, people get rebooked six months to a year. You know, you can't just keep coming back every other week. You Mm -hmm. know, people get tired of the the same people. So, yeah, you kind of have to spread it out and make a big networking base. Yeah, it can be difficult. So what were your succession of actual, like, real jobs before you took the leap? I was a bartender slash waiter for, like, six years. And then I worked at an elementary school for two years. And then they fired me, which always sounds bad when you say that in conjunction with elementary school. But nothing, it was okay. They fired me because I was working too much as a comic. And mm-hmm. then I worked at Jimmy John's, which seems to be the last resort of several comics. And uh, that was the last one I had. Well, let's uh, play a clip of one of your routines for people here so they can kind of hear you in action. This is, this is Mike Brody. And here's the thing. I love UFOs, man. I love them. None of my friends believe in UFOs, and they give me crap about it all the time. They're always like, man, Brody, if UFOs exist which they don't. How do you explain every time you see it on the news and they interview some abductee? No matter where it is in the country, it's always some toothless trailer park redneck hillbilly. Why is it always them? Why is it always them? I'll tell you why it's always them. Those are the guys the aliens throw back. (laughs) (laughs) They keep all the hot ones, right? That's what I would do if I were an alien. My spaceship would look like a Jay-Z video. <laughs> I don't need a hillbilly messing up the party. I got 99 problems and a c- block and redneck ain't one. <laughs> so you've kind of found yourself a niche as a paranormal comic. Is it the way to describe it? So you, like UFOs and ghosts and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. How do you fall into that? Well, I've always just been into the paranormal. I, you know, I saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a kid, you know, and Exorcist, and even though it scared the crap out of me, you know. But I've always just been into it. And as a comic, you just write about what you know. Basically, this girl who's actually on Ghost Hunters now, we became friends on MySpace. She saw my clips. It was just like one or two of them. She's like, hey, do you want to do... 45 minutes of ghost. Do you have 45 minutes of ghost material? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. And I had five. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I got booked to do these basically like little tour things with them where I go to haunted hotels and do 45 minutes on ghosts and stuff like that uh-huh. and then help them guide their ghost tours and their lectures and stuff like that. When that ghost hunters thing happened, was that is that just huge in terms of financial support? I mean, is that a steady kind of thing that anybody in your position would dream of? It helps a lot, yeah. It's, I mean, they're they're not frequent enough that it totally always pays the bills. I'd say there's about five or six a year, maybe. So, but when I do have them, I know I'm good for the month. I want to make a living and I want to have a house and blah blah blah. But honestly, money is the back of my head when it comes to comedy. I just love doing it and you know not having a real job. And I don't know. I've been doing comedy for so long and there hasn't been money bags the whole time. So I'm just kind of used to it. And that, and that's still more or less the way it is. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. getting better all the time. You start, you're so poor, and you just get used to it. Like, I think it's better to start just dirt poor, rock bottom, because then everything is on the way up. So that I, I'm like I'm like a workhorse when it comes to getting gigs, whereas other people with the regular jobs are like, oh, I could take it, but I'm going to lose money. For me, it was always making more money every gig I took. Give me a sense of a, a typical week, or like a good week, I guess. Like a, like a good week? Usually, like, like the bigger clubs will be Wednesday through Saturday, or Tuesday through Saturday, Tuesday through Sunday. 
we do a lot of one-nighter bar gigs in between fill-in things or just to make money nearby. But <laughs> I think we all like, you know, comedy clubs, places that aren't, you know, doing a meat raffle before you go up or, you know, is that popcorn or scratch-off tickets in the corner. And in a good week, then, you'll have a, a multi-day stint at a single yeah. club. And, and could that be anywhere around the country? For financial reasons, I generally keep it in the Midwest. Because you have to typically pay your own way yeah, to get there? Yeah. And so it's like yeah. somebody can offer you a gig in, say, Seattle, but when you're driving and or flying that far, you come back without the money. So, mm-hmm. you know, generally there's the MC feature and headliner. And I'm still pretty much a feature, um, and I'm right on track. They say about 10 years you should be headline, and I, I'd say I headline maybe half my gigs, and this is all within mm-hmm. the last year that it's started to make that jump. When I start headlining, pretty much just headlining, then you know you make roughly twice the money. Mm-hmm. So then maybe can I you can, can you give us any sort of hard figures? I mean, what does a what does a feature make? It really depends. I mean, some clubs a feature will make for. Wednesday through Saturday, we'll make 500, 600. Then you got to throw in expenses. Um, 500, 600 for uh, a night? No, the whole week. I mean, that's not a lot of money. No, it's not. <laughs> we sell t shirts. A lot of comics sell CDs or t shirts. And uh, it basically, it helps pay usually for all the expenses. So, I mean, you could make an extra 200 a week just selling t shirts. And most comics do it these days, especially with the economy. Yeah, it's definitely not lucrative, is it? No, it's not. I mean, not trying it, to be. That's like barely. I would think it's seven hundred bucks. There's no wonder you don't want to go to Seattle. Yeah, you know, yeah. Even, that's um, seven hundred bucks would be a good week. I, usually, you come back with about three or four hundred. You know, yeah. and uh, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, not being boohoo or anything, but it's not an easy life. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's really, really not. You know, you you you're never in a secure position. Even when you have all your gigs booked, they can get canceled. You know, you know, something can happen. The club can close. That happens. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like when we sell CDs or or T-shirts. These people that like, I'm just assuming on appearances, which isn't good. But like, some they look they look like they have a decent job. You know, they're you know they're well dressed or whatever. And they're like, you should give me a free CD. Like, I'm the one that's eating ramen noodles. You should buy two. <laughs> you know, yep. it, it could be stressful, but yeah. that's why you got to do it if you love it. You know, I don't like going to banks. They always ask really intrusive questions. You know, I come in like, hey, how's it going? Uh, what are you gonna do this weekend? I'm depositing a sock full of pennies. What do you think I'm gonna do? I'm gonna steal my neighbor's internet, cry a lot, and hope that KFC threw out something good. So in your mind, is this kind of, it's, it's sort of this or nothing? I don't have any real life plan Bs. Like, oh, if I don't do this, I'll go into pharmacy. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> as long as it's something creative that involves writing, mm-hmm. I, I would like that would be the same thing for me. That would be a success. That wouldn't be giving up anything, mm-hmm. you know. So now that like I'm kind of coming into my own at 30, it's kind of nice because I think that your prime as a comedian is 30, 40, maybe mm-hmm. even 50 or 60. I mean, Lewis Black didn't even get famous till he was 55. So as we've done with the last uh, few of these, we've been live video streaming the interview as we do it. And we had a question come in here from Ryan Coleman who's watching, and uh, he sent this in by Twitter, who wants to know who your comic influences are. Like Mitch Hedberg and Bill Hicks are two of my biggest influences, although I don't think my style resembles either of them in the least bit, mm-hmm. but I kind of it's kind of that whole attitude of you can do whatever you want as long as you have confidence behind it. Uh, you mentioned in your career now that you're probably crossing paths with comics who you might have seen when you were a kid, and now they're kind of dwindling or fading or whatever what's what's that like because you, you see other 
comics kind of go through these arcs of their career and some people are on the way down yeah it's gotta be a little scary a lot of times you can learn from the stakes of people in the past i mean the, i mean the comedy boom was in the 80s they were making they were all making six figures there was tons of comics there was clubs everywhere it was just a humongous like a like a gold rush mm. you know, or oil rush or whatever that was at the surge kind of when when towns were you know establishing yeah. comedy clubs it was the, the what's the deal with airplane peanuts like yeah. that era the, hey what's you know? up with that <laughs> right um but that apparently it was just crazy. And then it got overexposed, too much of it on TV. Somewhere between the late '80s and the mid '90s, it just crashed apart. It just fell. Hmm. And um, I started in the early 2000s, and it's the only time I can ever think my generation gets to look back at the previous generation and go, "You had it easy." Anna jotted down a nice question here, maybe to wrap things up on her her notepad. What was your worst gig ever? <laughs> the worst gig I ever did was my fourth gig ever. I went up and I did my 15-minute set and I did okay. And that headliner, mm-hmm. he came up to me and he just berated me because it was advertised on the radio as a clean show and nobody told me. Uh-huh. Nobody told me. Do you remember one of those jokes that you told to the the family crowd? There was something about a come and go guy slapping me on the ass. I talked about my <laughs> A lot. <laughs> a lot. So you really did it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was, uh... So the next show, I went back up, and I couldn't do any of my jokes. And I've done comedy three times before. Yeah. And so I'm up there trying to improvise and make up stuff. And I just, I forgot everything. I even forgot the jokes I couldn't do. And I just looked at the ground. And it felt like five, ten minutes. I mean, it might have been 15 seconds. I don't know. And I just go, I'm sorry. I've <laughs> never done this i don't know what i'm doing i'm sorry and then some lady god some lady goes it's okay which is almost kind of worse when they're just like they feel bad for you and then i almost made me feel better because she's like it's okay honey and then some guy in the back goes queer and and it was horrible and that's right when to this day i stick by this philosophy but i decided like my after my fourth gig i just go like no matter how good or bad i ever get i'm still a good person (laughs) <laughs> I had to just decide that. And so, but that's a good good strategy. You can't judge yourself by how well or good you do. When you get done, you have to be, okay, now I'm, I'm Mike Brody. You know, otherwise you're going to go insane. Well, Mike, thanks for coming in and having a, kind of a serious conversation <laughs> when all is said and done about, about your, uh, your work. Um, been good to talk with you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Before we uh, let people go, why don't we, um, we'll play one more clip of, of Mike Brody here. So I was looking at Wikipedia, and did you know, for instance, that every time a Fallout Boy song plays, somewhere a faux hawk grows. <laughs> it just comes out of the soil, and a metrosexual comes by, like, oh, picks it up, and puts it on his head like a Lego piece, and dance, dance. <laughs> Now notice, I know it's not everybody's laughing at that because I told my, that joke to my 45-year-old uncle. He didn't get it because it's a generational thing, right? So I wrote an alternate version <laughs> for his generation. So, all right, you ready? Okay. Did you know that every time a Journey song plays, somewhere a mullet grows? <laughs> That's right, it just comes out of the soil and some dude from shop class comes by. Puts it on his head like a Lego 
All right, that's Mike Brody. You can look him up at mikebrody.com or rooftopcomedy.com slash Mike Brody. And that brings today's show to a close. Just to bring it kind of full circle, while I was putting the show together today, I got a little distracted and was watching President Obama, what now, uh, two days after the State of the Union, heading to the GOP congressional retreat, which is in Maryland somewhere, I think, uh, to talk directly to Republicans in Congress. I, I won't recount it for you. I'm just a little ways into it, actually, myself. But it's very interesting viewing and uh, an interesting move. If you want a quick way to get to it, I'll post it on our Facebook page right now, loopfacebook.net. And that's what we got for you. Sandin Totten helped produce the show today along with me, and Anna Wegel was very involved as well, especially in that Mike Brody segment. Thanks for helping to pull all these starving artist interviews together, Anna. Uh, they've been really cool. So... Remember, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend or two. That is the best and, in fact, really the only marketing that we have uh, at the moment. So we're grateful for every reference we get. And we've met a lot of interesting people through referrals. And on that weirdly formal note, I will close it out. I'm Jeff Horwich. Talk to you next week.